Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. If you are a regular listener to this podcast, you will know that I also run a Patreon page where I've posted interviews, articles and videos all about conductors and the art of conducting. You can now pay for that content annually, and if you choose to do so, you get a 10% discount over your year of subscription. Just click on the link in the show notes attached to this episode, and it will take you straight to my Patreon page. Today, I conduct a conversation with an Israeli conductor, who's held title positions in Israel, Spain, Germany, Italy and Austria in both the Opera House and on the concert stage. In 2019, he followed last week's conductor, Juan Jomena, in becoming the chief conductor of the BBC Philharmonic. It's a great pleasure to welcome Omar Meyer-Velber. Omar, lovely to see you on Zoom and to chat with you. How are you? I'm very good, Michael. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. You're stuck in quarantine in Manchester at the moment. Um, we chatted before I pressed record and you've got a couple of days left. Um, how's quarantine been for you? It's very nice, to be honest. Um, it's a kind of, I mean, for my kind of life, it's actually a very positive change because now it, it's almost as if, you know, before each project you have these days, you can a bit concentrate, do your things. You're not just rushing from one orchestra to the other. Mm. So it's actually quite nice. Well, we're going to get on to how busy you are, not only as a conductor, but what the other things that you get up to uh, later on. But for now, as always, I go right back and I ask you, when did music first come into your life? Are you from a musical family or did it just come out of the blue? What happened in your childhood? No, not necessarily a musical family. No, um, no, I cannot say musical family. Um, you know, a quite normal family in sense of music. Yeah, so nothing, uh, you know, nothing specific. Um, everybody are a little bit musical in our family, but uh, no one is a real musician. And we do have our families basically divided between actors and stage people to to teachers. Yeah. So there's, the arts are definitely there, um, but not yes, necessarily yes, yes. music. Yeah. No, exactly. I read that you're a first for my podcast, that you are you started at the age of five playing the piano, but also the accordion. I've not had an accordionist before. Um, seems a, 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 a strange choice, unless, of course, the accordion is an instrument from where you are that is a, a popular instrument. How come the accordion? Yeah, I mean, it is um, from the city I'm coming from. In the city I'm coming from, there is a really, really big tradition of, of both actually accordion and mandolin. I mean, all oh. of them, all of the famous mandolin players, you know, are from my city, basically. Oh, wow. yeah. um, because um, it, it's basically due to the huge Russia, Russian-Romanian immigrant waves that we had in the 70s that brought with them a lot of musical excellency and, uh, and, and, uh, and some tradition in those instruments. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so accordion was, let's say, it was quite a, an immediate, you know, instrument to, to know and to see when you were a child in Bershera. Mm. Mm. And then uh, another amazing fact, you started composition lessons when you were nine, um, which is, you know, that's sort of uh, Mozart and Korngold's territory. Um, uh, what drew you towards composition? Were you writing for the minute you sat at the piano or played your accordion? Was, were you already forming and, and um, fantasizing and writing your own music? No, I was really, actually, I was, more I think about it, I, I, I myself even quite amazed by this because I was really, really active, you know, mm. and I, I had a lot of ideas and I invented a lot of things and I used to abuse all my musician friends <laughs> as, as, as young guys, young, young boys, 
to, you know, play my stuff and to see how it works. And there was a girl, for example, in our group that used to play the recorder and the other one used to play the mandolin, of course, and the other one, you know, so I, I would have all this music actually for really weird ensembles mm. because it's going to be for, you know, two flutes, a piano, one accordion, one mandolin. And, um, and then when I was nine or 10, um, there was, I, I threw in a family member um, who was some kind, somehow a musician. He, let's say, somehow directed me towards Michael Wolpe, who became my composing teacher, basically, when I was about 10. And uh, I stayed with him until, until the Music Academy, basically. And Music Academy, um, Jerusalem Music Academy, um, you were there eight years, which seems an awful long time. I mean, what, ages was, what age were you when you started at the Jerusalem Music Academy? So I left, basically, the um, army... Um, when I was 19, maybe yeah. a little bit more than 19, um, which is soon because officially you have to do three years of army. I did only one year. Um, and then I started studying in the, in the academy and I did my, in Israel, maybe it's a little bit different system, but basically it's about four years of, um, how do you call it, of BA yeah. and, uh, and then two or three years of, of master. Mm. Since we had this really, really famous um, a teacher in Jerusalem who, who then, after, then a few years ago he died, but he was a really, really big figure and mentor. I just wanted to stay as long as possible, you know, just to yeah. be with him. And uh, uh, was this composition teacher or was this conducting teacher? Because No, this condu is condu conducting teacher. Ah, so when did that start? When did conducting, I'm assuming, being a composer, that the first time you conducted anything would have been your own music to try and get it performed or uh, even in a small group. So when did conducting first uh, come into your life? And then when did you start studying with this teacher? And who was it? Yeah, so the, the first of all, conducting was always somehow there. I used to, you know, enjoy myself as a child, as a teenager to um, to conduct, let's say. Mm. Um, but then exactly as you said, I mean, I started working with different ensembles and do different things with my music and arrangements and all these kind of things. So I, I started to have some experience. But of course, only in the academy, I took it really seriously. Um, this man, his name was Mendy Rodan. He's a really, really, he was a very famous pedagogist, yeah, mm. of conducting. And um, it's like, you know, these people like uh, Musin in Russia, who was not necessarily a very big conductor, but everybody know him because of pedagogical, his pedagogical activities. And Mendy was very special. He was a Holocaust survivor with a very, very unique story, very unique personality. And, um, and he was, you know, he was, he was the department because he was the president also of the Jerusalem Academy at the time. And he, it was really a one-man show, you know. <laughs> and um, and actually, it's it's funny that we talk about him now and about this now because today in the morning I had a big Zoom with the new president of the Jerusalem Academy, who wants me to become a little bit the main figure of the of the department of conducting. And it is so it's interesting how things you know yeah. go on. And uh, so today I had a lot of a lot of Mendy Rodan day because we talked about him a lot in the morning. And yeah. So you mentioned. Musin, um, a name that's come up on this podcast many times over the 70-odd or so episodes, and also the other name, of course, Panela. But then there's Swarovski School from Vienna. Um, what would you say that Mendy's style was like? Was he very much like a Musin, where virtually everything came from the stick and they weren't really taught an awful lot of score prep and learning, or from the Swarovski School, which is t almost totally score, score prep and hardly any stick technique at all? What was he like? 
No, I mean, I think if, if I have to describe it with, with a, let's say, with, with a certain school that we have in conducting, this is for, for sure German school. Right. Yeah. Uh, because I think in Romania, anyway, the Romanian school was German oriented. And um, so it's not French school, it's not Russian school, it's somewhere towards the mid, mid Central European school. Yeah. Um, which means, of course, um, the one, the main important issue is that harmony is more important than everything. I mean, you know, the first three rules are harmony, harmony, harmony. <laughs> and uh, as he used to say, and, um, and this, of course, you know, reflects, has a huge impact and huge influence on, on the technical sides, on the choices, choices of tempo, choices of articulation, everything basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and also technically it has a lot of, uh, um, it has a big German influence just with really small, small things like, you know, the, what, how to create a legato, especially the legato actually, and the whole uh, rhythmical components, how to really interpret rhythmical issues because let's say in one word in German school the length of notes need to be played and conducted for the fullness of the of the note yeah mm. um, you should not jeopardize the length of a note for the sake of phrasing mm. you should make it work somehow but you should not jeopardize the length of the note and not like in Italian school in French school where you can really basically almost edit you know uh, intuitively yeah. a lot mm. of things so anyway this is just basic but generally this is, let's say, more or less the direction. I think the other important thing, let's call it like that. It's funny to say it like that, but I think the most interesting thing about him as a teacher is that um, we never talked, you never talk about interpretation. Mm. Yeah. Um, because it is almost as if, um, how can I describe it? You know, it's about, um, it's about, you know, it's almost like as if he would send you to Amazon. He, he guides you what to buy, um, but then you need to unwrap it yourself and, <laughs> and understand what to do with it yourself. Yeah, yeah? That, that's a really good metaphor. Exactly. So, I mean, yeah, by, by talking to you about the basics of harmony and rhythm and harmonic rhythm, which is a third separate sort of thought. But yeah, by, by teaching you those basics, then when it comes to the music, then you unravel and unwrap the world of music yourself. Um, you just need to know how where to shop in the first place. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah, I know. And also, you know, you also used to say, you know, um, um, you also, I mean, the, also the interesting thing about people like that who are real pedagogists is that they actually, actually create everything for the specific student. Yeah, this is, of course, the main issue. Um, um, I remember when I arrived to Barenboim, um, for example, he noticed immediately that I, I have a very good memory. Um, so he immediately, you know, put his foot on it, you know. Mm. And uh, so the rule was that if he conducts something by heart, I have to conduct it by heart. <laughs> yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, but, but this also, it, but he told me, you know, because he saw that I could do it, you yeah. know. Yeah. And for example, I did it myself with an assistant of mine who is, is a brilliant, brilliant, I mean, probably my, the best young conductor I've known lately, who was my assistant in Glyndebourne. He's a young English guy named Ben Glassberg, ah. who, is, who is just really unique, yeah, yeah, really special. And I saw it in him. And for example, when we did Butterfly in Glyndebourne, I gave him basically to conduct more of most of the general rehearsal. But the condition was you should you have to do it by heart as I do it by heart. <laughs> and I have to be honest, I mean, he really made it. I mean, he, he, he put the score there because I told him just, you know, it's not, it's not uh, you know, we're not in, in the Second World War, but try. And he, and he really made it, you know, but mm. because he could also. 
Well, that doesn't surprise me. Having interviewed him for this very podcast, uh, yeah, very talented uh, guy. Uh, in between your two years working for Daniel Barenboim at the Staatsoberunternehmen in London and Berlin, you become music director of an orchestra. Now, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, so you please tell me off. The Ranana Sinfoniette Orchestra. Is that oh, how you nice. pronounce it? Oh, good. Yeah. I did okay. Good. Um, which... Um, reading up about it, does a lot of musical education projects and, and obviously community work. Um, are you still doing that 12, yes, 13 yes, years sure. later? Uh, so how did you get involved with that? Or was that an orchestra that just was set up specifically for that? Yes, I mean, um, this orchestra is very famous in Israel because this is a little bit, you know, like the Boston Pops. Oh, okay, yeah. It's a little bit the orchestra that does all the events that the serious orchestras didn't want to do. Right. Um, and naturally, nowadays, everybody just do it, yeah? yeah but yeah. Um, at the time, so what happened in one, in two words, it's an orchestra that was created by the woman who is still running the orchestra, um, Orit Fogel, her name. And she basically saw an opportunity because in the, in the early 90s, we had a huge wave of Russian immigrants coming. And um, you can imagine how many musicians came. Yeah. And of course, some of them went to the Philharmonic, some of them went here, and a lot of them remained without a job. Mm. And she saw this opportunity and let's create an orchestra to, you know, to put these people together and give them something to do. Mm. And um, so this was the original reason, yeah, for all of that. And then, of course, this social mission um, stayed and stays until today as some kind of a guideline to a lot of things we do. Of course, we also play a normal Beethoven symphony, but this is maybe 20% of our activity. Mm. Um, really, not more. Um, most of it is about education and uh, let's say half education, half, um, let's say Jewish tradition and Jewish music. Yeah. Um, yeah. actually not only Jewish, it's not good to say Jewish. It's actually about folkloristic music because we have a lot of Arabic music, Muslim, and a lot of interesting other things, mm. but, um, and, and yeah, and until today it's very active. I mean, what I can say also that it reflects a lot our budget, for example, because we are the number one orchestra in Israel we, uh, regarding earning money. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Because we almost three times our budget. Can you imagine? Um, we managed to earn. Yeah. Well, and is that due to people funding you because you go and do community and education projects or also because you're doing the popsy stuff, the people that, you know, if you put on a John Williams concert on a Friday night, people will come and watch it. Exactly, but it's not about funding. It's about we sell products. I mean, for example, I don't know in England, but in Israel, for example, if you are a head of school, of a normal school, yeah. you have a certain money that you can invest in yes. theater, music, sports, whatever you want, yeah? So we have about 13, 12, 13 schools. We just cannot do more. We, would have, we have a waiting list of, of hundreds, but we have 12, 13 schools with whom we are working in a very, very close contact. Basically, on a weekly basis, we come to the schools and they pay for these services, yeah? Wow. Um, and this is this is a lot of a lot of interesting um, uh, connection between you know the kind of state money budget culture etc. And also we do a lot of special events. I mean consider that the, the orchestra in a normal year plays, I think every day. Wow. I wow. mean maybe really 300, 300 evenings or something. You know. Um, of course it's not the same. It's not the same musicians. We have different mm -hmm. kind of. But still, it's a, it's a lot of a lot of activity. Yeah. Well, schools do have budgets for music and the arts, but you might get one player to go. You wouldn't get an orchestra to go and you wouldn't get many players out of it. And some schools, no. you wouldn't even get a what, whole player to go. Exactly. <laughs> no, no. What we do, actually, if you want to hear, I mean, what we do, um, um, our famous project, it's called The Beat. Yeah. In Hebrew, it's Peama. 
And it means uh, the project is basically all the orchestra is divided to different kinds of groups, trios, quartets, quintets. Um, they just form it themselves, however they want. And yeah. basically each one of these groups has every day, I mean, our working day starts at 9.20 in a school and, and then until 10.05 and at 10.30, they start the normal rehearsals for the orchestra. So every day, these groups go to a class, you know? And imagine that if you play the violin in one of these groups, you have a class with whom you basically live for, for one year. You know, you go oh, every wow. week to these kids, you know? And we wrote hundreds of lessons and hundreds of, of things. Mm -hmm. And these kids come to us once every three months. What an amazing scheme. That's great. And, That's wonderful. Uh, and they come to bigger, bigger concerts in our place. But imagine for the kids. I mean, if you are a kid oh. in second grade, you meet Michael every week, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's, and, that is amazing. Uh, it's amazing, you know? And we have million ideas and, and lessons. And, and, and I can tell you what is also interesting in that is actually the statistics are very interesting that um, two of um, each class, statistically, two of 30, more or less, um, become somehow young musicians. I mean, two in 30 either start to learn an instrument, um, a play on instrument, or actually learn in more serious, um, serious things. So actually this activity, if you think about all the classes that we do, brings to the local conservatory about 30, 40, 50 kids a year, which is also very interesting. Well, that's amazing. I will be looking it up. I will be reading about it because it's something that's very close to my heart, which is, you know, taking music out to your the surroundings around your orchestra and touching the lives of the people around you. I think it's incredibly important. Um, as I said, that happened in the middle of your two years working for Daniel Barenboim. Other than forcing you to conduct things from memory, what else did you learn from Daniel? Um, how much time did you get conducting there? Um, were you doing all of the roles that assistants could do, you know, assisting him by listening in the auditorium when he was conducting, but also taking on later performances in a run? What was it like? Yeah, of course. I mean, when you are, uh, I mean, there are different roles of assistant, yeah, when you are a musical assistant of someone. Naturally, if you are the assistant of probably the most important musician in history or since, I don't know, Mozart, um, the assistantship has different, yes. uh, different levels and different angles, you know. Um, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, you are sitting in the hall and giving comments and stuff like that, which is something I've never done. Oh, okay. Right. No, because he doesn't give a shit about this stuff. And uh, <laughs> because, and to be honest, me neither, because to be honest, you know exactly. I mean, you know, it's a... Uh, it's like one of these, um, you know, when, when you have a, I don't know, when you have a fight with your partner and you, you say everything besides the real thing that you know. Yes. Um, so also here, you know, it's, uh, you know, when it's out of balance, you know, when it is, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But, um, but anyway, I'm just saying that. So um, there are, I think the more interesting thing is that, for example, I just tell you how clever he is also that in the audition week that we had, yeah, in the, um, a big part of the audition was actually going to dinners and to talk and to, you know, because mm. um, conducting, a lot of people can conduct and he saw it. I conducted the orchestra, the orchestra said, looks good, fine. Yeah? yeah, in theory, that's it. But he needs, you know, he needs a real partner. He needs someone he can, and you know, and we, 
we 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 switch books we we have uh, you know we have a lot of interest things together and also he needs to see that there is a person with a certain personality mm. because you also need to do everything you know if it's a tour i do his press uh, uh how do you say press uh, advisor Yes. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he needs now someone to just lead him into all his interviews. Yeah. Or when you do whatever, you can you can turn the pages and you can conduct. Suddenly he doesn't come and you need to do all the orchestra rehearsals with the Vienna Philharmonic because he's not there. Mm. And then you need to do, you know, so it has a lot of things and a lot of time together, a lot of traveling, a lot of, because it's really, it's 24-7. Yeah, it's mm. not just come to work or something. And um, I, I managed to go through this about three years. Um, and this was this. I mean, this is it, you know. And until the interesting thing is that you know now I have my assistant. She's a very very cool cool girl, and um, she she does her masters now in Berlin. And she went to see some of Barenboim's rehearsals, and she called me after and she said, "Listen, it is so funny because I saw him, and I was like, this is exactly the stuff that you do, you know. <laughs> it's like it's of course it's Barenboim and everything, but it's mm. like." The school is very clear, you know? Mm-hmm. The school is very clear. The way you talk to the orchestra, the, the things you stop, what exactly do you stop and correct, which is the big profession of conducting, yeah? Of course, yeah, of course. The, from the hundred things you have in mind, what to say and how to say, this is the main issue. Well, I, I find that fascinating because, you know, you would never, I mean, it used to happen in the, you know, from about the 70s backwards, you would never give somebody a, a job in an orchestra based on an audition alone. Uh, and and therefore, they, they sit on a trial period. And depending on where you live, that could be anywhere between 12 and 18 months, and then you're off of the job, or you get off of the job and then do 12 months in the orchestra before you're given your contract. Why would it not be any different as an assistant conductor? But I'm sure in, in an awful lot of places, you'd pass the audition and you're welcome come in for two years you could be inviting anybody in you could be inviting somebody who's just the worst person to be around you know and and i think that i think that's so important um when it comes to choosing my assistant i think i would definitely want to sit in a pub with them for an hour or two and or dinner and chat with them but i tell you this is also about what do you expect from the person and also it's about what do you really think you can make out of him because it's yes. not a secret and it's not a it's not a miracle that non non not any other conductor in the top league does what Barenboim does. Mm. Mm. No one, Abado, mm. Zubin, Muti, wonderful people. No one gives a shit about the young generation. Mm. Mm. Yeah? And the only one, and let's count. I mean, I don't think you have today maybe twelve conductors who are in the top of the world who were assistants of Barenboim. Mm. Mm. From Tony Papano, from Tony Papano to Philippe Jordan to I mean whoever you want, from Savasta Bastan Vigel to to everybody. Yeah, I've interviewed know? two on here, at least yeah. two. Um, Domingo Hindigan, who's now just exactly. Liverpool. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's um, it's and this is something that you know it's not just uh, it's not a miracle you know he works for that and it's important for him and this is why also he looks for the people in the right way because he knows that he is creating something you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so all the others who says, you know, I was assistant of Bernstein, I was assistant of, I don't know, whoever you can say, to be honest, um, it, is, it doesn't say anything, yeah, because it's really as good as, as air, because um, there is not any um, other conductor who really, really does it seriously, but really generously giving you his, 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 his heart, you know? Well, let's run with this subject a little bit longer, because something just popped into my head. 
because the problem is most of the time, and when I've asked assistants, or people who've been assistants on this podcast, I've asked them, were you assistant to Omer Mirwelber or were you assistant to the BBC Philharmonic? And I think there's the difference, is the fact that they're not your assistant, they're assistant to the orchestra. And therefore, as in, in your role as um, chief conductor of the, of the BBC Philharmonic, Omer, you know, how much time can you give uh, when you're not there all the time, do you know what I mean? Uh, that, so therefore, the problem is 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 the job itself is the fact that they're they're assistant to an orchestra, and not to a single person. And then it's really be beholden on you, for instance, at the, in all of the places where you're MD, which we'll come to later, as to how much hands-on you can be with the assistant. Um, yeah. I think that's but the look, tricky I thing. I think that the word assistant is wrong because I think those people are not assistants. They are associate conductors or associate young conductors. Um, and their job as assistants, let's call it like that, is, of course, very limited. Mm. They sit in the, in the audience. They do some things. I mean, it's very nice. And it gives some kind of experience, mainly watching other people, because this is the, yes. main, the main way you can learn, which is anyway good. Um, but, for example, just to tell you and to, to make you understand, I mean, when we were in the Staatsoper in Berlin, there were other people who were Kapellmeisters mm. who are officially would be his assistants. But no, I was Kapellmeister and assistant of the music director. Yeah. yeah? Mm. So, um, and for example, there are people, you know, f wonderful conductors that he, until today, he insists they were never my assistants. <laughs> they were Kapellmeisters, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, um, and I have to say, I see it also on myself. I see it with Karen, for example, the, 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 the woman, the, the girl I told you, she's my assistant now. And, um, you know, it's a different relationship when it's really something, yeah? When you have the real thing and it's really another hand, yeah? Mm. Um, um, it's really different. It's, of yeah. course, different. And also her responsibilities are different because she does everything and she's the reference also, you know? Because um, I, thank God, I have um, this ability to be actually quite sympathetic, as you can see now, but not a lot of people know that because mm. I have this face that, that <laughs> don't appear so sympathetic at first, at first appearance. So this is very lucky. So mm. normally people tend not to talk to me about anything and talk to her, yeah. Um, yeah. which is very, very good for me. But again, I permit it because I know that she is capable of doing it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the good thing with the real assistant is that she resolves 80% of the problems and the 20% that she cannot might come to my table, but this is really confronting much less problems um, and I can concentrate on other things. Mm. Well, let's look at what you have to concentrate on. Um, you, uh, after leaving uh, in Berlin and uh, Daniel Borenboim, you become a music director in Valencia at um, a place that I'm not going to try and pronounce. Uh, it's Palais de Les Arts, Reina Sofia, something like that. Um, yeah, so nice. four years there, but you also do an awful lot of opera guesting. The Met, Kleinborn, Bavarian State, Israeli opera. Um, if we look at the positions you're now in, uh, principal guest since 2018 with the Semper Orba Dresden, since 2020 music director at Teatro Massimo Palermo, soon in 2022 to be music director of Vienna Fox Opera, and as I had mentioned earlier, 2019 you became chief of the BBC Philharmonic. What that means is that you're going to be spending quite a lot of time in opera houses, theatres, Salford, Media City, and maybe less time to be able to go and guest, as I mentioned, in all of those wonderful places. What strategy are you looking at in a post-COVID world um, about taking on, let's say, a Glyndebourne production or a production at the Met? Or 
or getting introductions to new orchestras, other you know, symphony orchestras around the world, how do you think you're going to manage that time? Because with you, time is a big thing, as we're going to come to later on as well. Yeah, no, but I think that exactly as you mentioned, I mean, I decided that I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Um, and that it's not that I don't want to do it, it's that I want to do something else. Um, and I prefer now to concentrate on three institutes where I have my people, my musicians, we have our friendship, we can do work that has continuity that has meaning and 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 and, and you know and, and a mission and not just uh, come for a week have a nice week somewhere and disappear and not see these people for the next two years or three years so basically from the season 23 24 at least for two or three seasons um i will just concentrate on my places so in a, on a time wise it, it it's basically i'm going to work as much as i work now but i'm going to work only with my with my institutes, which I find a little bit more uh, interesting at the moment. Well, I think that's a wonderful position to be in um, because I've talked about it many times on here about the hamster wheel of, of guest conducting. And it is a hamster wheel because, you know, the hamster seems to enjoy being on the wheel, but sometimes it's difficult to get off and sometimes it's very strenuous and, and tiring. And I think, you know... But, you know, I think it's also about the kind of music making you're actually looking for because you have yeah. great conductors, maybe the greatest of all, people like Kleiber or like Bernstein, who didn't want to be music directors anywhere and they preferred yes. actually to have... Uh, deep relationships but you know like a grandfather relationship you, you enjoy with the kids and you just you don't have any responsibility <laughs> that's a very good metaphor i like that very much Concentrating on the BBC Philharmonic, uh, an orchestra I love and I've worked with many times. I think they're wonderful, wonderful people. Um, you've already introduced some repertoire to them, you know, looking at Paul Ben Haim and even done some, I think it's a four part series on his life that uh, you can get on the BBC Philharmonic right website. Now, this, yeah, doing, this yeah, yeah, it's being released right now, which is the middle of May, dear listeners, um, even though. Um, it, it, I'm sure it'll still be there when the podcast episode comes out um, and I'll put the details in the show notes below so you can find it but when you come to program with the BBC Philharmonic and I know this from working with the BBC but also speaking to other BBC conductors obviously there is a um, there is an onus on the BBC to play the weird and wonderful the forgotten um, the brand new but also, you know, how much chance have you got to turn around and say, yeah, I don't mind conducting the works of Granville Bantock or the latest piece, but could we please do some Ben Haim? Uh, have you other composers that you really want to share more with the BBC Philharmonic? Yes. I mean, I think that the first thing I have to say is, as I expected, the BBC um, has what it appears to have, which is kind of openness mentality and mm. innovative. Because, you know, for us, people who are not British, um, BBC has this image, you know, of something very colorful, very high level um, mm. and very sophisticated. I mean, you know, it's a BBC program, you know, it's a thing that, especially in Israel, for example, it's like a thing, you know. Mm. And, uh, and um, so I have to be honest and say, this is really like that. I mean, yeah. it's, not, it's not just a, an image. I mean, there is a certain, for example, one of the, maybe the, the second thing we talked about when we started working with Simon Webb uh, on my contract and everything, you know, maybe the first thing was time. Mm. And the second thing was 
Omer, please bring us whatever you want. New repertoire. We had now a Spanish conductor. We did a lot of Spanish things. Now we want your world, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and we individualized it basically into two big issues. One is Haydn, which this orchestra is playing already and will play a lot. And they, they didn't play for years, basically. Hmm. And, and I have a, a, whole, a whole thing with Haydn lately. And the other thing is, you know, some, some Israeli composers, um, like Paul Ben Chaim, for example. Um, and as we saw also in the proms in 2019, um, because we played there the first symphony of Ben Chaim, and actually it was, it was exactly what you want to happen. You know, when you play a symphony that no one knows and you have a, a standing ovation of 20 minutes for, for an Israeli piece that was written in 48, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and um, so, you know, this one is in 38. And, um, and, and, and this is exactly what you want, that people would go out and say, how come this piece is not in the repertoire, you know? Um, yeah. And you have some of these things, you know, also in English music, you have, for example, we are going to put some effort on, on Tippet, mm. um, which I like very, very much. And I also have a sense of, almost a sense of, uh, how do you call it? I mean, I, I feel that I, I, I owe him something. Mm. Um, because he was one of the composers that were, let's call it, were somehow put on, in a very nice golden small box created especially for him by by britain um and um and you know one of these neglected not even neglected i mean he made them a bit neglected because he was of course the most talented but he was the most talented yeah. uh, in he you know he's one of the most talented composers per people ever but he was also quite um quite aggressive with his colleagues yeah at least from what i read and what i know from different friends of mine etc and so i have this i'm i i like I like these stories, you know, so I, I tend immediately to connect to Tippet and not to connect to Britain, mm. you know, mm. and uh, so I feel this, this thing that we need to give Tippet a little bit more attention, um, and we will. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's good. Um, I think Tippet's one of those composers whose music has programmed much less since he died. I think his music was programmed quite a lot more whilst he was still with us and still alive. Um, yeah. But since his death, it's, it's not been forgotten, but it's definitely not been programmed as much as it should be. Uh, and I'm looking forward yeah, to no, hearing I more. You, I can tell you even more. I, yeah. I think what you say is due to, to the music and the death, but it's also due to the kind of, kind of interpretational keys that were used at the time for this music, which I think is wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you understand? And I think this music, I mean... Uh, you know, there is a, Mendy, my teacher, once said something very intelligent. He said a lot of intelligent things, but one time he said something that really, really interesting. No, really interesting that we talked about contemporary music because he used to conduct a lot of the Israeli contemporary music. And he said, you know, the contemporary composers, most of them, and the contemporary, uh, how do you say, uh, interpreters, most of them, did one mistake that caused us until now a big problem with the public and big problem with the world of music. They took out the component of sex mm. <laughs> and of eroticism, which is very yeah. interesting if you think about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And because he says, you know, Omer, from from the year thousand two hundred to the year to the nineteen hundred, sex was the only motive to do everything. <laughs> you know, you yeah, think you, yeah. see, you think you see Maria and and Jesus, but it's actually about sex. You saw, you think you see, it was about you know the human, uh, 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 the human expression, yeah, mm. and the, and the contemporary composers took this component out, mm. you know, and 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 then also the the contemporary uh, interpreters took it out because it's not there, 
and um, and and he says this was, for example, one. He thinks this was one of the reasons for the clash with the public because you took out the most important component in an art in an art piece. Well, that that's going to lead to a second question then, um, which I'm going to run with, in the fact that if we take Tippett, for instance, but I, you know, I, only because you mentioned him and possibly even Britain, was the sex taken out because the fact of the sex that they were having was illegal uh, and therefore was hidden away you know that it, it wasn't open um and also during the you know especially in british culture during the 20th century you know the uh, talking of sex was became something almost taboo or dirty to use a, rather than you know, it was a lot more open in in other places um what do you think to that i mean i'm just well, running, think, i'm I, running with the ball put it that way <laughs> no, i think you have i mean i'm sure that there are explanations psychological social explanations as you say but i think yeah. it actually also comes from the over intellectualism of music basically mm. yeah this is what he says yes from the moment music became a brain issue and not so much a heart issue um, this is where the clash, this is where the problem begins. And by the way, this is why the Russians won. Mm. Because if you think about it today, what is the only school of contemporary composing who is actually still relevant is the Russian school. Let's be mm. honest. Yeah. You know, I mean, the line of Shostakovich, Schnitke, Gubaidulina mm. is a line that no one ever managed to do in German music for sure not. Mm. And, uh, and, and also not in English music. Yeah. So it's very interesting. You know, it's this it's there is something there. And why? Because maybe because of the social situation in Russia, this is no doubt because of the Soviet Union yeah. and the kind of and the kind of and, and for some reason they kept the heart beating, you know. Well, because, um, because writing 12-tone music was not allowed in communist Russia, you know, formalism, but also not, you, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, they dabbled in it briefly. I mean, you know, there are bits of Shostakovich where he dabbled, you know, in the string quartets where he dabbled in it. But they're not my favorite string quartets, um, you know, and that that sort of sums it up. But yeah, I mean, that's possibly one of the reasons why it survived because it wasn't allowed. Um, so, uh, oppressive political regimes. Um, yeah. the, a, a flip side at a good point of it was that the music still came from the heart and not from the head. Uh, very when interesting. You play, eventually, when you play music or you write music, um, you know, for example, yeah, just to mention, we 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 have this, you know, the. Yeah. When you say when you when you tell a musician when a musician asks someone and you say are you a musician he said not I'm a musicologist it's immediately like <laughs> an, 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 almost like an allergy yeah yeah exactly and, yeah. Yeah. you understand and this is why this is because of this also you know because mm -hmm. it's it's the kind of those composers took themselves the job of too much of a musicologist you know mm -hmm. in a way yeah and uh, this is what Mendy actually says you know that you they took out the main the, the main catalysator, the main power, the main gas of any art in history, and they just cancelled it, you know? Mm. Um, it's very interesting, actually, when you think about this thing. It is very, very interesting. Um, which means that you've inspired me now because I'm going to order it. Uh, we're going to go on to one another thing that you do. Um, you're the second person I can think of who I've interviewed who I, I sit here and think, how have you got the time to do all this stuff? Uh, you've co-written a book in 2017. Uh, that's called The Fear, The Risk and The Love, which is about your experiences about conducting and w working on Mozart's operas, uh, which that's the book I'm going to order because it sounds like it's going to be a very fascinating read. But you've also written your first novel, which was published in 2019, called, uh, it's probably not a very good translation from German to English. It's called The Four Faints of Chaim... 
Birkner. You should go. You should go with the Italian version, and okay. the Italian version has much as the real name as it's okay. supposed to be, yeah. and it is um, the the true and untrue story of Chaim Birkner. Okay, right. Oh, therefore, I, I, I pressed the wrong Google Translate button then. Uh, right. Actually, no, I can think it appeared on, I looked on your website and Google Translate. I blame Google Translate. So how do you find the time to sit down and write? Um, when do you do it? Because obviously, you know, you're learning scores all the time. I don't even know whether you're still composing. I suspect you probably are. Uh, no shake of the head. Well, there. <laughs> uh, uh, I came no. back to it just before lockdown because I did compose when I was a student. But that, but yeah, um, podcast has now taken up all of my available time. So when do you find time to write? Look, of course, I cannot commit myself to writing like a normal writer in a way that I can wake up at nine o'clock and write until four o'clock or something like that. Yeah. Although I have to say between us that my second novel that I just finished now um, was written this way because thanks to the lockdown that we had in, in February, yeah. March, April and June, I became a writer, which yeah. I never I never had this 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 wonderful uh, you know possibility. And actually during the lockdown, I, I did a, a bit of life of a writer. You know, I would wake up in the morning and write for a few hours. Mm. And um, and uh, so, but this book that you talk about, I mean, the first novel, let's say, um, this was written basically in the summers. You know, I would collect material and feelings and ideas all year, all the year traveling. And then in the summer where we would just have vacation somewhere, I would dedicate these two, three weeks to write. And this is why it took me a long time. It, I think it's about maybe eight or nine summers, actually, you know. Mm. And, um, and then in one of the summers, I think it was summer 2018, I just decided that's it. You know, I have to finish this book because I became also obsessed with with Chaim, with this, with the main character, and uh, and like everything, I was always thinking about him and about his. Everything was from from his eyes, and 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 I just had to go on to move on, you know. And so I decided to finish this one. And now, of course, I'm obsessed with other personalities. <laughs> I have in my, another thing. Yeah, but at least it has a change, you know, because with him, also this book has very very deep uh, connection to my life and to my heart and and all the story there so it was also not so easy to live inside the the holocaust and then zionism and all these complicated questions for years you know because mm -hmm. it's um you know um it's also nice to put some stuff under the carpet yeah <laughs> <laughs> There is a question that every single conductor has been asked, and you will be no different. But I'm wondering, you know, because of the time we spend in our studies, really, this is what this question is about. When you come to learn a new score, do you uh, sit at the piano or do you just sit and use your inner ear? Do you have a process of looking at it many times and shrinking in on a problem or starting at the beginning and working through the harmonies? And when you work on a new score, are you a writer in? Do you use red, blue, black? Do you use highlighters? Or do you write nothing at all and commit it all into your memory? Because you said you had a good memory. How do you go about it, Omar? So let's start with the last question. I don't write anything at all. Okay. Um, and, and more than that, I don't have scores. Um, I don't like so much to have my own scores. Mm. I don't have this kind of nostalgic thing also of using my score and stuff like that. So basically, I get my scores... Um, if I don't have, if the orchestra doesn't send it, I buy the score, but then I always leave it in the orchestra when I finish the project. Okay. Yeah. 
So at home, I actually have really few scores, only like, you know, one I got a present from Barenboim, the other one I got a present from Jimmy Levine, the other one I got a present, you know, and so it's nice, I keep it, but um, scores, like, I don't have this thing of, okay, now I do again a Shostakovich symphony, let's take the score from the library and, you know, so this I don't have, um, this due to the fact that I don't write anything, so it would not matter, no. and also to the fact that I... I like to have this excitement that I remember very much as a young conductor of getting a new score. Mm. Yeah. So if I need to do now a symphony that I did before, um, it doesn't really matter. You know, um, in theory, if you are really in love with someone, so every time you go to bed, supposed to be like, like the first time. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, somehow. Yeah. At least some elements should be as the first time. And, so you know things about the person, you know things about yourself, but it is it should have some first time feeling, and and I find that I manage to follow this feeling when I just get new scores. Yeah, yeah. Also the feeling of like new, you know, the smell of a new book, and it's like you know. So this is for the so the end is this. I don't write and I this, but the best. I mean, I got a very very big gift from. I was always very lucky with teachers since I was a child. I always had very good teachers and real artists. You know, yeah, yeah. with all the complications, by the way, yeah, with depression, <laughs> with with violence, with everything you want, but but really serious teachers. Yeah, Barenboim is of course the peak of it, but from Barenboim to Mendy to my to Volpe to Tanya to all my teachers as a child. You know, it's like really serious people. And Tanya, she was our, as children, she was our solfege, harmony, he, listening uh, uh, lessons, etc. And she really managed, and it's really interesting, but she really managed in a very young age to create um, in me and in some of my friends, a very, very, very strong, really strong sense of inner hearing. Mm. Yeah, but extreme. I mean, really extreme. I mean, I, I literally look at a score and I really, I can swear to you that I really, really feel it. Yeah, mm. I really, really feel it. And this is a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful thing to have. And, um, and so when I open a score, you know, I immediately get the feeling I need. Yeah, of course, as, as more developed and more, more experience I have, I already immediately see my things, my the things that I'm interested in, et cetera, et cetera. But mm. the... the and another thing I do when I do contemporary music, I have quite a, a special way of reading new scores. Um, I don't read it from the beginning to the end. Um, this you can ask a lot of composers with whom I work. They always laugh at me when I look at the scores. I basically read the first page, the last page, the second one, the four last, the third one. The, and I basically go parallel from beginning to, to the middle, from the end to the middle. Oh, wow. Yeah, And this is something I've developed um, because I noticed that we have a problem that since we are obliged to read from beginning to the end, we are obliged to give the music a certain linear contributions. Yeah, very true. Which, which is fortunately with good contemporary music should not be always an issue. Yeah. Mm. I mean, of course, when you read a Haydn symphony or a Beethoven symphony, you should read it from beginning to the end because, because it is on a linear time, um, time guide. But if I read now a contemporary music and officially I don't know the music, I, this way allows me to immediately read and also understand what form he's using and what kind of, you understand what kind yeah. of, and I can, I can immediately understand, you know, the themes are coming back and how they're coming back. So the reading becomes from page three, 
you are on much higher level of reading yeah because yeah. you don't just expect to see what will come you already have ideas from the end and so i slowly i develop this and i really like this you know it's mm. something that I, i find very very for me it's when i get new pieces i love this kind of reading oh well i promise you i'm going to try that next time i conduct a contemporary piece that's hot but, off the but press I tell you, something, you, you will see that even if you take just for the sake of exercise even if you take a beethoven symphony and do it what is interesting is that it has nothing to do with his language but your reading will become so much different yeah oh you well know? Um, it's a, it's actually really interesting yeah because it just you know it takes it takes out the time condition which is in theory the the one that we immediately imply to yeah yes yeah I like I'm gonna try it I'm definitely gonna try it so one of the things about this podcast I love is the fact that I've learned many things about conducting I've learned that we all do it differently uh, I've learned that we also all have to be ourselves but I Um, it's been a long time since I've had a, a conductor who doesn't write anything in and it's the first time I've had a conductor who said actually I don't have own hardly any scores at all um, so that <laughs> that's wonderful but yeah I'm going to use that I'm going to try that I think that sounds like a fascinating way of learning something um, ne- the next thing on my desk I'm going to try it if like me you do have to mark your scores to help you in the process of learning the score then I've written an article just for you on the subject and showing my own method and explaining how I go about the process of marking and learning a score. You can see this article, as well as other articles, bonus mini-episodes, interviews and videos by subscribing from just £5 a month to my Patreon page. If you decide to pay annually, you can even get a 10% discount over the year and join the discussion all about conductors and conducting at a discounted rate. The details are in the show notes attached to this episode, and it would be great to have more of you subscribing to this ever-growing supporters club. Now, back to my chat with Oma Meyer-Velber and the all-important 10 questions. Oma, it's that time when we must traverse the 10 questions, and I start, as usual, with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I'm very, very sensitive to noise, so... There are a lot of noises. It's not that I hate, but I'm disturbed. For example, in my apartment, when I'm just doing the quarantine now, you have this English system of like heating and water and stuff like that, which makes an unbelievable noise yeah. in the apartment. So basically, I turn it off. Um, um, I hate this kind of hate. I, I'm, I suffer from this kind of small noises, you know, like mm. cars or stuff like that. And yeah. And what, I, what noise I, I like? Um, I don't know. Mm, um, yeah I have a, I have a lot of answers I cannot really tell you I think <laughs> well, so I can always I can always so, turn it into an explicit rated podcast. You know what, let's do like this so let's go with the complete auto opposite Freudian Freudian thing I would say when my child calls me you know or something like that yeah <laughs> <laughs> It's a, it's a perfectly acceptable answer but I may well leave in the your first first description as well because I think that's funny <laughs> if you had 24 hours free what would you spend it doing um basically it the only question is is there a sea or a beach in the place I am or not if there is a beach there is no discussion yeah um, you go to the sea immediately and if there isn't any um uh, you gather your tears and you go to a museum and Mm. And w- when you talk about going to the beach, are you a uh, sit and catch the sun or are you getting that water and swim and you know surf or are you active? 
Well, all of it, you know, actually. I mean, you know, I was born in, in, a, in, a, in a city where we didn't have a sea, but I grew up basically all my life in Tel Aviv and, and, and the sea in Tel Aviv is really a part of the city, you know. It's something, it's where you drink your coffee, it's where you eat your lunch. It's, uh, um, it's actually a place that you really live a lot in Tel Aviv, you know. Mm. And uh, so now, for example, when I'm in Palermo, when I'm there in the summer, for example, I basically stay on the beach. I mean, yeah. Very wise. I can think of one conductor here who, who I think he had three jobs in, in a row as music director that were all by the sea. And I, I, I yeah, thought it was that, yeah. very clever choices. Next one. Who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear? So probably if I have to choose one. You can have more than one. I can have more than one. Um, so let's say um, the top of the list are probably Bernstein, um, Kleiber, and Georg Zell. Brilliant choices. I must clarify for the ultra conducting geeks, Eric or Carlos? I uh, know Carlos. Yeah, <laughs> just checking. <laughs> uh, he does come up. His name does uh, is an answer to that question more often than not. But I do have to check. To be honest, Eric Leiber um, is actually a conductor I know quite well because I, I I had a fetish a little bit at a time where I listened to a lot of his recordings. And to be honest, if your question would be um, your let's say favorite conductors before the fifties, yeah. He would probably it would be my choice more than Toscanini or more than others because actually I prefer him much more than I prefer Fritz Reiner, for example. Mm. Or I mean, there was something actually very, very open and very creative. Not not this kind of Karl Böhm, you know, mm. boredom or or this kind of. I mean, he was actually quite a creative man. And and um, and so anyway, so you know, if I have to go that far, I would probably choose him. Brilliant. Um, well, I don't mind either being cho chosen. The question which an awful lot of people find a lot harder, and again, you can have more than one, is who would be a favorite current conductor? For me, it's not hard. It's actually very, very simple. It's Wagen Boehm. There is no competition and no, no other choice. <laughs> Funnily enough, the minute I, I read the question, I thought, I know what the answer is going to be. I don't know why I gave you oh, that build-up. Just, just to be honest, to understand, is just when you work with someone like that, all the others, even if they are wonderful and, and brilliant people, they are pale. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just there isn't, I mean, we will never be able to get so close to, to this kind of dedication and commitment and, and, and really, I mean, this is, this is the real thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Um, probably um, the opera Faust by Gounod. Mm. And because it was so boring and I hated it so much. No, I'll tell you seriously, um, I hated it so much. And, and for the evidence, I conducted a new production. I did a full rehearsal plan process. I did 12 shows and I don't even remember a name of one of the protagonists without, besides Faust, of course. Yeah, I completely, I hated every minute. So this was actually very, very, very hard. Um, so my answer would be um, only the boring stuff are hard for me. I mean, the things that I don't really believe in or I don't really feel committed to, um, then it becomes hard, you know. Um, um, I don't think necessarily that things need to come easy, but, um, but they should neither come hard <laughs> as, as a difficulty. Yeah, what's interesting is that's the first time anybody's given a, that reason for it being the hardest work. But actually, it's a really serious point in the fact that, you know, especially early on in your career, you're asked to go to an orchestra and you might need to conduct a world premiere of something, which you 
end up hating. You might end up having to conduct a concerto because it fits in with what the orchestra want to do programming-wise, which you really hate. And, and it's a special skill to be an advocate for music that you don't like. You know, you can't turn around to the orchestra and say, look, this is an absolute pile of whatever. But you can't say that because that, you know, already you're off onto a wrong footing. And I can tell you that there is a very famous piece that I conducted quite a lot in the beginning because everybody wanted it because it's a big scene and it makes a huge show. And nowadays, since I can fi finally, fortunately choose whatever I want to do, I don't even get close to it. And this was as hard as it gets. And this was um, a Symphonie Fantastique. Ah. It's a piece I completely don't get. I, I always hated it and I had to conduct it quite a lot, as you mentioned, because it was, it was an opportunity, you know? Yeah. And, um, and this, was a, it was, this was really a nightmare. Well, the great thing about classical music is that we don't all love and hate the same stuff. I love Symphony Fantastique. So if you wanted to book Omer to come and conduct it, book me instead. And now we know, don't we? <laughs> um, the next one. When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? So before I answer, I think you should also put Kindle. Well, Kindle's not an often answer, so ah, okay, yeah, okay. Get, give give yourself go for that answer. <laughs> ah, okay, good. So no, actually, to be honest, the, the I always fly with my Kindle because this is what I do, um, and I always fly with um, I always use the fly time, let's say, um, to to write. So I yeah. I always have you know like notes and things that I need to like work on and things like that. Kindle's a perfectly good answer because not an awful lot of people have given it. Mostly they use old-fashioned books, paper and, and glue. Um, and there is another thing that I've, I always have in my bag, if you want to, if you want to know, is actually a pack, is deck, a deck of cards. Now that's a new answer and uh, and another good one. I always play with it during the during the the flight yeah. and make magic tricks to the people next to me. <laughs> oh, well, I want to be entertained if I ever sit next to you. That sounds great. Brilliant. Um, number eight, what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I tell you honestly, I, I cannot manage to find an answer because I don't reason like that so much. I am quite, uh, I quite like everything because they are there or because they happen. I'm not really, I don't think about what, what if and things like that. It's not really my kind of reasoning, yeah. you know? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not into this so much. Like, I don't know. I just accept what it is and make the best out of it somehow. But I don't really think like that. So you're yeah. fairly happy with your lot, which is good. Um, yes, of course. No, yeah. but it's not even about being happy or sad. It's about, yeah. uh, you know, this is, I mean, being lonely. Yeah, okay. This is how it is. I mean, be, be, be careful what you wish for. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely true. Absolutely true. Yeah, if you, if you don't like being lonely, don't become a conductor. If you don't like traveling, don't become a conductor. I understand. I mean, it's something yeah. I don't know. But yeah, so this is for sure will not be my answer. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I really don't know what to tell you. I don't have this kind of uh, feelings towards this profession. You know, I'm so happy with it. It's like, this is what I wanted. So why, why changing it? Brilliant. Well, let's... Let's see if somewhere in your fantasy world, if you have a fantasy world, you, there might be a profession other than your own that you'd like to attempt. So, I mean, when I was a teenager, let's say, um, I, the, the, big, the big competition was between being a, a, a musician or going to medicine school. Um, I started doing a lot of, a lot of, I started the first year of medicine school, I basically did, as my last year of high school 
um, because I wanted to, you know, um, and I was really into it. And uh, but then I then I went to the army and then I just decided then that's it then that then it happened. But so let's say if there is something that I think I I could do well and 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 enjoy uh, would be probably this. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Probably uh, falafel, pita with falafel. Lovely. And uh, something to wash it down? Yeah, so, pita with falafel, there is no choice. Pita with falafel goes always with a grapefruit cold juice. Oh, right. Okay. Right. In um, our, our, we have in Israel, there are like, um, how do you say, you have like different classes. Um, and we know a lot about the person if we, if we know what he drinks with his falafel. <laughs> so, so we are in the grapefruit, in the grapefruit juice uh, uh, group. <laughs> well, therefore, if we ever sit down uh, outside a cafe on the edge of the sea in Tel Aviv and, and I have a falafel with you, I shall choose my grapefruit juice. Yes, wisely. someone chooses water, I mean, like, dude, it's over. You know, if you choose Coke, it's even worse, you know, so you have to... Um, it's been a wonderful way to spend the last hour or so, Omer, with you. And I look forward, hopefully, in the near future to come up to Manchester and come and say hi and maybe have a beer together. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Wonderful. Really great. Thank you. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time. I chat with a conductor who, after studying in his native Canada, went to Germany and became immersed in the Kapellmeister system, working at the Comic Opera in Berlin. Since then, he's guest conducted in many of the world's greatest opera houses and also on the concert stage. But until then, bye bye. <laughs>